This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 381st episode, we have a bunch of news, which Sabrina is doing all of. So I don't even know what it's going to be. Taurosaurus updates, decolonizing paleontology, using AI to categorize fossils. Oh, that is exciting stuff. Mm-hmm. And we have an interview with Filippo Bertozzo, as well as Dinosaur of the Day, Afragia. But before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons. And this week we have two new patrons to thank. Ben recently joined, so thank you very much. And so did Dragon Feathers, which is also the name of their art studio. So thank you as well for joining our community. And then rounding out our shoutouts, we've got Christine, Remy Rodriguez, Aria and Tristanosaurus, the Tolbert family, Amato Titan, L Rex. Cezisaurus and Sarasaurus Rex. Nice. Thank you so much for being part of our community. And thank you to all of our patrons who help keep our show going. And thank you for all the kind words since last episode when we announced that we're expecting a little girl. I don't think I mentioned it was a girl, but it is, <laughs> in case you're curious. <laughs> yep. We're very excited. And appreciate all the support. And supportive words. And she's getting lots of quote-unquote boy clothes because for some reason onesies with dinosaurs on them are often considered boy clothes, which is ridiculous. It starts young. It does. Jumping into the news, there was a paper called The Record of Taurosaurus Ornithischia Ceratopsidae in Canada and its Taxonomic Implications that was published in the Zoological Journal of the Linnaean Society by Jordan Mallon and others. And drumroll, please. Pretend I'm doing a drumroll. <laughs> this nice. latest paper, yeah, considers Taurosaurus to be a valid taxon. Mm-hmm. From the paper, quote, the horned dinosaur genus Taurosaurus has a challenging history relating both to its geographic distribution and taxonomy, end quote. In the paper, they described two frills that were found in Canada in upper Maastrichtian deposits. So in other words, the very end of the Cretaceous? Yes. They said those were, quote, most plausibly attributable to the Taurosaurus morphology. So in a nutshell, they found Taurosaurus to be a valid genus and not just an adult form of Triceratops. And also, since these two frills are from Canada, that marks the northernmost range of Taurosaurus. Hmm. Now, Taurosaurus is known from several states in the U.S., if you're calling it Taurosaurus. (laughs) 
Dorsers was named by Marsh in 1891 based on two skulls found by Hatcher in Wyoming in the Lance Formation. The first skull he named Taurosaurus Lattice, and the second skull was named Taurosaurus Gladius. There was a third skull found in South Dakota in the Hell Creek Formation, and Colbert and Bump said that the differences in the skull were due to individual variation, so they synonymized Taurosaurus Gladius with Taurosaurus Lattice. In 1946, Gilmore named a rhinoceratops, question mark, Utahensis, based on some skull material found in Utah in the North Horn Formation. And then in 1976, Lawson said that this was Taurosaurus utahensis, and he also assigned fossils found in Texas in the Javelina Formation to Taurosaurus utahensis. Now, features of Taurosaurus include, quote, a broad, flat, and thin caudal parietal bar, end quote. So parietal bones, they're like the two bones in the skull that form the sides and the roof. Back to the frills described in the paper, the first frill, EMP16.1, Thanks for that. <laughs> well, because I have to refer to them some a few times here. And they don't have fun nicknames. Not that I know of. Not that I saw. Though, okay, well, we'll call this one the first frill. It was found in Saskatchewan in the Frenchman Formation. It was briefly described in 1986, but then in 2005, it was argued to be more closely related or closely resemble a rhinoceratops. Though it was briefly described in the 80s, it was actually found in 1947 by Harold, quote-unquote, Corky Jones, a local amateur paleontologist. The frill is pretty complete, though parts have been reconstructed with plaster. And the frill is, this first frill, is somewhat larger than that of a rhinoceratops brachiops, but it's smaller than the largest known taurosaurus frills. It's pretty square-shaped. It's square in outline, according to the paper, and it is 1.1 times wider than it is long. So that's what gives it that square shape. It's similar in that way to a rhinoceratops, although it is more triangular than the frill of Taurosaurus lattice. Sounds like it's halfway in between them in a lot of ways. Yeah. And it also had this rugose, you know, rough texture on most of the surface. The frill, this first frill, is still in a plaster support jacket, but Sternberg, back in 1948, drew a sketch of it in a letter, and that showed some details on the underside of the frill. There were also three large hind limb pieces associated with this first frill, parts of the right and left femur, and they did osteohistology on it. In other words, they cut it open and looked at what the texture was inside the bone? Yeah. And they kind of figured out the age, so there was a lot of bone remodeling. It's unclear, actually, how many growth marks there were. But a few things showed that this was not a fully mature individual, based on both the frill and the hind leg material. That includes the fact that there were epiosifications of the frill mostly missing. And the author said, quote, that indicates that they had not yet fused to the skull at the time of death. Also, there were these long, thin, parallel streaks on the bone texture of the parietal that, quote, suggests that this part of the frill was still growing rapidly, end quote. And when they did histology on the long bone, it showed that it was close to being mature, but it was probably a late subadult or an early adult individual. Okay. So that's not quite the juvenile, very young Taurosaurus specimen that we've been saying, if we find it, could put the final nail in the coffin of the debate. Yes. Yeah, this one is close to being fully grown. Now, the second frill, UALVP 1646, 
is from Alberta, found in the Skullard Formation. It was found in 1964 by C.R. Stelk. That one was attributed to Taurosaurus back in 1979 and then cited in a couple papers in the 1980s, but it hadn't been illustrated or really described before this paper that came out this year. Well, you'd think with all the hubbub about Triceratops and Taurosaurus, these wouldn't be so ignored. Well, actually, I think the first frill had been mentioned in other papers, but not this second frill, because there was a paper in 2005 by Sullivan and others that talked about the first frill having more in common with a rhinoceratops, but they didn't consider or mention the second frill. In the 2005 paper, they said that that first frill had more in common with a rhinoceratops because of three features. Uh, wedge-shaped parietal fenestrae, so that's the wedge-shaped holes in the back of the skull, a broad squamosal that doesn't taper to a point in the back. So the sort of bottom part of the frill stays pretty broad. It doesn't have any point to it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, and then the third feature is a narrow midline parietal bar. It's just a narrow bar kind of on the skull. Now, Jordan Mallon and others went through these three features, and they found that the original shapes of the fenestra, those openings, are actually unknown because the bones are too thin and not well-preserved. So it's too difficult to use that as a feature to base it on. Because it could have been damaged or something over time. Mm Mm-hmm. They did agree about the squamosal being different from other Taurosaurus lattice specimens, but they said that the morphology was similar to Taurosaurus utaensis, so it's not a great diagnostic or unique feature to use. And for the third point, they doubted that the parietal bar, quote, is an accurate representation of the original condition because the bar was missing when Jones collected the frill and, quote, so its reconstruction represents little more than guesswork on the part of the restorer, end quote. Hmm. So based on that, They rejected this first frill to be a rhinoceratops or a new taxon and said both it and the second frill looked similar to other Taurosaurus lattice specimens. And, quote, we are therefore confident in our assessment that Taurosaurus ranged north into Canada, end quote. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So this is more of a, we found a Taurosaurus hiding under a different name (laughs) situation. (laughs) A little bit. And also the second frill hadn't really been described, so more Mm. evidence for it. They also mentioned that we don't know the exact locality of early collected Taurosaurus material, where exactly they were found. So that makes it really hard to know where Taurosaurus lies stratigraphically. Okay, so then we don't necessarily know which ones are younger and older and all that jazz. Yes. Now, Scannell and others in 2014 found that most of the more recently collected fossils from the Hell Creek in Montana came from the lower half of the formation, and that's a different time from where stratigraphically the Canadian Taurosaurus material was found. The Canadian material came from the equivalent of the upper Hell Creek. Yeah, so later. Mm-hmm. So it is possible that there were different species of Taurosaurus that lived at different times. And the authors wrote, quote, the recent debate about whether Taurosaurus is the mature growth form of Triceratops could be settled if a sufficiently immature individual of the former genus were found, end quote. So going back to your point, Garrett, we still need that juvenile. Yeah. <laughs> but it sounds like they, since they found a pretty youngish one, that makes them more confident. Or at least a not fully grown one, yeah. Yeah. 
that they think they're on the splitter, not the lumper side of the debate. I think so. So the debate continues. This next news item, there was a paper called Digging Deeper into Colonial Paleontological Practices in Modern-Day Mexico and Brazil that was published in Royal Society Open Science by Juan Carlos Cisneros and others. And some of the authors include Nuseba and Emma, who we interviewed back in episode 340 about decolonizing paleontology. And in this paper, the researchers looked at colonial practices in paleontological publications. They wrote, quote, Scientific practices stemming from colonialism, whereby middle- and low-income countries supply data for high-income countries and the contributions of local expertise are devalued, are still prevalent today in the field of paleontology, end quote. Now, countries such as Mexico and Brazil have adopted protective laws and regulations to preserve their paleontological heritage. The author said that scientific colonialism is still seen, though, in many publications describing fossils from these countries. I think I know which dinosaur they're talking about. Well, that is one of the big ones. Ubi Rajara? Yes. Science.org, I saw, mentioned a controversy last year about a shark fossil from Mexico, described by a mostly European team, and how because of that debate, Brazilian paleontologists who've been working to repatriate Ubi Rajara from Germany started working with researchers from Mexico and other countries to look into colonialism in publications. And according to that article, they, quote, defined colonial science as work that doesn't include local authors affiliated with research institutions, houses fossils abroad, and publishes on specimens that were likely purchased, a practice outlawed in both countries, end quote. Both countries being Mexico and Brazil. Okay. So they have a, at least a definition for colonial paleontology in Brazil and Mexico. Mm-hmm. It seems like a good definition, right? You're you're exporting things, you're doing the research. It's all that sort of you go somewhere, you take a bunch of resources, you leave. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of the whole point of colonialism. Yeah. And this paper in Royal Society, Open Science, they looked at publications from the last three decades on Jurassic and Cretaceous macrofossils in northeastern Mexico, and then from the last three decades on Cretaceous macrofossils in northeastern Brazil. In total, it was about 200 publications they looked at. They were going through keywords in Google Scholar, and then they considered the top 100 results of each. And they also included papers from researchers that they knew had worked in the area or studies they were aware of. For the Brazilian papers, there were so many publications they had to restrict their search to holotypes of plants and vertebrates, basically publications about new species. Those are probably the most important anyway, because holotypes are always seen as the most important of a species or of a genus. They're definitely the most well-known. Yeah, and in terms of the collections and all that kind of things, those are the most valuable because that's what the researchers are really comparing to. And so they might be the most valued for taking out of a country as well. Yeah, it could be. So they found some common issues in these publications. Some of them included... Uh, not collecting permits or not mentioning in the paper if they had permits, not including local researchers, fossils that were in private collections or fossils illegally purchased and exported. With the fossils found in Mexico, they found that foreign researchers led about 47% of the publications. And of those 47%, about 52% didn't include local authors. So most of the publications that were the primary author was someone from out of the country that didn't even include a single person from the country. Yeah, around half. 
That's not great. For the Brazilian fossils, foreign researchers led about 59% of the publications. And of that 59%, about 57% didn't collaborate with local researchers. Oh, that's even worse. It's a little bit higher, yeah. There's almost no record of fossils from Mexico being stored in foreign collections, but they found 88% of the holotype fossils described by foreign-led researchers from fossils in Brazil were housed in foreign museum collections. Oh, wow. I mean, in historical paleontology times, that is the way it usually went, because you'd go somewhere, you'd find a dinosaur, and then you'd bring it back to whatever institution you're affiliated with. But I think that's the whole point. That's the colonial version. Yes. So the paper had some counter arguments to arguments that could result in scientific colonialism. And that includes, quote, fossils should be considered global heritage, not national heritage. And the reply is, quote, this is an incorrect assumption as fossils have been known to humankind since ancient times and in several documented cases have become part of the local for- folklore and myth, end quote. Yeah, definitely. Also, fossils are the most relevant in the locality that they're from because if you take a fossil, even if it is a similar species or the same species from one country all the way across the world to another country, there's going to be differences from the fauna. So it's Mm -hmm. harder to research if it's so far away from its original context. Yeah, true. The second argument they countered, the argument was, quote, host countries do not have adequate facilities or personnel to store fossil objects so they are safer in Western museums, end quote. And the counter argument is, quote, Western museums and historical sites are similarly at risk of being damaged or destroyed, e.g. through fire, substandard conditions of museums, and high risk to extreme weather conditions, end quote. And they cite, you know, one of the famous examples there is the holotype of Spinosaurus, as an example, was destroyed in a Western museum. Yeah, definitely. If you're talking about worrying about losing fossils, the answer is not a debate about which museum is the most likely not to burn down. It's digitizing them (laughs) and well-documenting them, things of that nature. So then the third argument they brought up was, quote, there's a lack of local scientific expertise, research education, and investment in science in lower-income countries, end quote. And the counter-argument to that was that there are actually many natural history museums and institutions that offer courses in both Brazil and Mexico. Definitely, yeah. (laughs) That argument might apply better in other countries, but it certainly has no place in Brazil and Mexico, and even in other countries. Even in other countries, it's growing. Yeah, and there's usually somebody you can include. There's going to be some geologist or biologist or somebody who's Mm going to have some local knowledge that would be useful to include on the paper. Now, the fourth argument they brought up is, quote, there's a disinterest in fossils among the local community, end quote. And the counter argument to that was emphasizing scientific outreach and keeping fossils where they were found to get local people interested in them. Yeah, <laughs> that's sort of a circular logic. People aren't interested in this, so we're going to take it away so people aren't going to see it and then people won't be interested. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we've seen that with Mongolia as more fossils are coming back. The interest in dinosaurs is growing. Nice. I think we've talked about that on this show. The fifth argument that they talked about was, quote, specimens are lost to science if they're not collected and studied, end quote. And the counter to that is that in a lot of countries, there's locals who can collect the fossils and study them. 
Also, quote, fossils are lost every day due to natural and human processes, such as weathering and erosion, natural disasters, quarrying, and construction, end quote. Yeah, I hear what they're saying there. But I think if there aren't a lot of people interested in the country at actually digging out the fossils, getting them more interested in them and getting them involved in it, I still want them to be taken out and preserved somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like the idea that it's like, well, we'll just let them all fall apart because sometimes they fall apart anyway. Yeah, I, I think you're right. It kind of goes hand in hand. You build up the interest and then more people want to dig. Mm -hmm. The sixth argument that they brought up was, quote, laws are too complicated or difficult to access, end quote. And the counter to that is that the laws are different in each country and some are more complicated than others. Sometimes it can be difficult to navigate, so you want to work with local institutions to help out. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Wouldn't be so hard for you if you just worked with a local. <laughs> well, they didn't put it like that. It was much more neutral. Yeah. And the last argument that they said was, quote, commercial exploitation of fossils aids science, end quote. And the counter to that that the authors wrote was, quote, when fossils are openly traded, the exploitation of fossil deposits can become uncontrolled, probably resulting in a loss of important provenance information about that material. The removal of fossils without any documentation of geological information reduces the scientific value of these specimens, end quote. That is definitely true. Certainly when you're talking about holotypes and really rare fossils, you'd like to see scientists get involved with them. The authors also wrote about the implications for science in the local community, and they wrote, quote, private collections can interfere with the reproducibility of science and impede access for both scientists and the general public. They also wrote the purchase of fossils does not benefit the local community in the long term. The lack of interaction with local scientists can generate poor quality research. Poor conduct in international collaborations erodes local expert trusts. Fossil specimens that are difficult to access have a negative impact on local science development. Oh, for sure. And poor quality research can produce a large amount of dubious data, end quote. So a lot of counterpoints to these arguments that we've heard made in the past. Now, the authors did emphasize that they're not advocating for a nationalistic approach to paleontology <laughs> and that international collaboration is important, which is good and definitely true. Yeah, the only one that sounded a little bit nationalistic to me was the one about how there's a lack of interest in digging it out and how the answer was kind of like, well, they could just fall apart and that wouldn't be the end of the world. Mm. If you collaborate more with other countries who are interested in digging it out, you can avoid that one. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of these counter arguments, when you put them all together, then you have this holistic approach. Yeah. So the paper did mention ways that we can move forward. That includes technology and information sharing, like we were saying, Garrett, with the CT scans, photogrammetry data, 3D prints, also just sharing replicas. Other ways to move forward include having more rigorous guidelines in journals regarding ethics and the legal status of the fossils in their articles. And we, we've talked about a few journals that are already doing that. Yeah, I think most. Yeah. Then there's governments enforcing laws and regulations. And regularly reviewing those laws and consulting with experts and stakeholders. So, you know, if you need to update those laws. And last, museums and universities and research institutions having a code of conduct. Those all sound like good things to do. Yeah, and, and also they're actionable steps that can be taken. Makes it easier to move forward. Yeah. 
I do. I think it's interesting that they emphasize they're not being nationalistic because that is sort of the obvious overswing you could do on the pendulum mm. of too colonial, everything's getting exported. You know, we have to have our national pride and then swing too far the other way mm-hmm. to like these should only be published on by people in our country and should never leave our country and all that kind of stuff, which is also bad for science. Yeah. So I like that they're trying to avoid that. It's not about having only people from one country publishing on it. It's about making sure that people from that country are included in the research. Yes. Yeah. That's a really good way to look at it. Yeah, it seems like there's more of these kinds of studies and papers coming out lately, so I'm I'm sure we'll hear more in the future. The next paper we'll talk about is called CT's Segmentation of Dinosaur Fossils by Deep Learning. It was published in Frontiers in Earth Science by Song Yu Yu and others. And it's about how AI can help standardize and make paleontological research more efficient. Specifically, you're using AI or deep learning and deep neural networks to label and segment CT scans of fossils. And that can help speed up when you're building a foundation for how to identify a taxon. And it can help you with comparative anatomy, functional morphology, all kinds of things. Yeah, that CT scan, because when you do a CT scan, you get, what is it, hundreds or thousands of slices, Mm -hmm. individual basically x-rays that all stack on top of each other, and then they have to all be cleaned up. And it seems like a pretty manual process doing that work. So if you had AI that could help you with all that, that would definitely help. Yes. Yeah, instead of taking days to weeks to analyze these fossil scans, it could go down to minutes. Wow. We're not quite there yet, but we're starting to get there, which is nice. It would also be good because it can help establish research standards, like how do you interpret certain structures of a fossil. So what sparked this was that recently in the last decade, Deep learning has been useful for image processing of medical images, for example, with skin cancer detection. So they thought, why not fossils? <laughs> and the authors created a data set of 10,000 CT scans of three embryonic protoceratops skulls. These skulls were found in the 1990s in the Gobi Desert in Mongolia, and they tested fossil segmentation with AI. Now, segmentation, that can include things like knowing what's a fossil versus what's the rock that's surrounding it just as an example of one of the things that can help label. They found that with these three particular skulls, the deep neural network could efficiently segment them, but it's not quite perfect yet. Unfortunately, it doesn't work for everything, including they tried on limited data sets of other vertebrate fossils, even fossils from similar localities or areas. And the next step would be to add more data to train the AI, because... A lot of, with deep learning, it's about continually feeding it data to train it so that it knows what to look for and what doesn't work. Yeah, I wonder too, because with the CT scan of skin, looking for skin cancer, that's a very specific thing. It's all human skin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's probably detecting similar sorts of growths or issues with the skin. When you're talking about CT scans, that could be anything, right? That could be a dinosaur And even if it's a dinosaur, you know, is it a protoceratops? It's very different than a parasaurolophus or a T-Rex or, you know, a sauropod skull. They're all so different that if you have a machine learning algorithm that only learns on protoceratops, then you try to apply it to a sauropod, there's no guarantee that it's going to be able to figure it out very well. Yeah, and I think that's why right now we don't have a way that this works well enough that you could replace 
doing this work manually. Mm-hmm. But it could be feasible to use AI, more AI in future research eventually. And that's exciting. Because then if you can do this kind of work in minutes and have it all standardized, like think of what kind of debates that could help settle. And also other kind of work that paleontologists can focus on. Yeah, definitely. Rather than spending weeks working on one CT scan, you could be analyzing the data that comes out of it. Mm-hmm. And our last bit of news, this is a quick item. The trailer for Jurassic World Evolution 2 Camp Cretaceous Dinosaur Pack is out. So I guess that's an expansion to the video game where you create a Jurassic Park of your own. Yes. So the new dinosaurs, they include Kentrosaurus, Monolophosaurus, Aranosaurus, and Scorpios Rex. Oh, good. <laughs> a lot of people like Scorpios Rex. Oh, man. <laughs> I guess. It could be kind of fun because in that game, it's all about controlling them when they break out and things. So Mm -hmm. the more extreme they are, it adds the level of difficulty to it. Yeah. Plus, if it breaks out, you've got to really watch out for your other dinosaurs. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Based on Camp Cretaceous. And the people because you've got all the people visiting the the zoo too. Mm Mm-hmm. Now we're going to pause for a quick sponsor break. But when we get back, we'll get on to our interview with Filippo Bertozzo. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our interview with Filippo Bertozzo. But of course... We have an extended version for our patrons, so if you are a patron, make sure to check out your premium content feed for that. 
We're joined this week by Filippo Bertozzo, and he's a postdoc researcher at the Museum of Natural History in Brussels. He studies some of our favorite dinosaur topics, including paleopathologies, air sacs, and dinosaur behavior. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a honor. So you also study ornithopods. That I didn't put that in your intro, also known as duckbilled dinosaurs, and you wrote a revision of the hadrosaur oranosaurus. I just wanted I was curious how you got started on that project. Oh man, that's a story. Because <laughs> uh, let's start uh, with simple things. For me, ornithopods are the best dinosaurs. <laughs> So I usually, I like to joke, especially when kids are around the museum and they ask me, what's your favorite dinosaur? I start with, it's not the T-Rex. <laughs> I don't, kids, I don't study theropods. Don't, I know about theropods, but I don't study theropods. I don't, I don't study carnivore. I prefer herbivores. And within the herbivores, I love ornithopods. So Oranosaur has a very dear position in my heart. Because it was the very first dinosaur that I've seen when I was a child, because there is the original skeleton in Venice, at the mm. museum in Venice. And I remember, I, was, I think I was like five or six years old. My parents brought me to see the, the museum. I was already in love with dinosaur when I was five, six. And I saw the old mount of the skeleton in the museum there, the original skeleton that is there. And it really struck me because it was. It was a dinosaur, it was a real dinosaur, very close to my hometown that is near Venice. And then I found myself about 15 years later, uh, my undergrad studies in Bologna, in Italy, uh, for my uh, natural science degree. And I was offered to study that same skeleton for my undergrad thesis. And I was just... <laughs> Are you... Are you kidding? Of course I'll do. It was a huge amount of work that took so many months, but it was my first experience handling dinosaur bones, a, a complete skeleton, a, a very important skeleton because it's the only real oranosaur that you can meet and see and visit outside Africa. The mm. other skeleton is in Niamey, in Niger. So it's the only one in the entire world that is easily visible because it's difficult to go to, to Niger. And so I I found myself there to study the, the, the skeleton, that the same skeleton that I watched as, as a kid uh, a few years before. And it's also the my first publication. It's a publication that me, Fabio Marco della Vecchia and uh, Matteo Fabri published in 2017. And it was also my first experience with the academia, the publishing world, uh, so the journals, the impact factor, all, <laughs> all those metrics and numbers and things that you have to check for for publishing a paper, um, and I have fun to you know started to learn uh, like graphic skills to make the from bones to picture to tables to the official illustration that you put in the paper. So it was really my my training to get into the professional paleontology. And to think that everything started from the first skeleton that I saw as a child, man, it's it's a feeling. That's amazing. Yeah, almost always when we ask somebody, how'd you get involved with, you know, stegosaurs or whatever? The answer is like, well, 
you know, I wanted to do paleontology and my advisor had this project and he said, I could work on this. And I was like, I guess I'm not that into it. And now I'm super into it. It's amazing that like as a kid, you were already super into this dinosaur and it just came full circle like that. I started very early because in Italy we had in 1992, 1993, I'm from 1990, so I was like two years old. Uh, we had this amazing uh, scientific journalist that made this uh, five, six episodes long uh, series called uh, Dinosaur Planet. That's, mm, uh, yeah. let's, let's translate it from the Italian. That was uh, a complete Italian-made documentary with the supervision of uh, the late paleontologist Dale Russell, uh, with all animatronics and uh, illustration, all done by Italians. So it was a very proud for us. Uh, and it, it, really, it really was a blast for the Italian audience. It was it became very famous. And it inspired a lot of people to go at least into dinosaur, but in general to science mm-hmm. and to, to nature. Mm-hmm. And my mom still tells me that uh, he, she remembers me when I was like uh, two years old. I was attached on the screen uh, when <laughs> this guy was telling about dinosaurs uh, on the main channel of the Italian television. So I think I started at that time to think, uh, okay, this is cool. Dinosaurs are freaking cool. I want to arrive to study them. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That is. <laughs> Is there anything specific about Oranosaurus that you either found surprising when you studied it or that was like something you especially like about it? Well, it's easy to say the sale. <laughs> mm-hmm. There are several things that are not so first sight, let's say, about the skeleton. Uh, speak about the, the thumb size, uh, the proportion between the limbs, uh, the mosaic of characters in the skull and etc cetera, etc cetera. but i think uh, of course the most uh, streaking uh, uh, feature of ranosaur is the seal mm. so there was this long tradition of people saying okay the ranosaur has a seal as a hump it was for fat reservoir it was for muscles and yara 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 <laughs> so uh, it was one of the topics that we covered in uh, in our paper and thanks to histological analysis, we cut the, the spines of the vertebrae. And we see that uh, there seems to be a muscular insertion at the base of the cell, whereas on middle to top of the cell, we don't see this signal for mm-hmm. uh, musculature. So we can think about that at the base of the of this cell, quote, quote, uh, there was a long fiber of muscles, and on top, it was more like a cell, so covered in skin and uh, and blood and and very thin, thin tissues. Hmm. And to me, it was amazing. Then it was. I really still remember the day about a year ago uh, when I was in Belfast for my PhD. Uh, that a friend of mine, a colleague of mine, sent me uh, a message saying, "Have you seen the third season of Cam- Jurassic World: Camper Cretaceous? I'm just having a look at this right now. Well." There might be something that you'll scream about. <laughs> and I arrived to the episode, spoiler alert, with the Uranosaurus. That for me, I mean, to think about the Uranosaur that is a dinosaur that it was it wasn't that famous before Camp Cretaceous. I mean, it was cool, it could have been seen in a, in some video games, but it was not the let's say the Parasaurolophus or the Iguanodon. It was a not so known ornithopod. Mm-hmm. And to see it in Camp Cretaceous and seeing children discussing about this dinosaur 
for me it was like uh, it's my boy i'm proud (laughs) and i and i saw that the people making the the model for the for the series okay a lot of things are completely wrong i say that the feet and the human like the 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 molar like teeth etc etc but the sale it follows our paper Oh, nice. Because if you look at the model of, of Oranosaur in the in the series, there is a very muscular base, and on top it's much less muscular, more thin, and it's not something that has been seen in other representation of Oranosaur. So it might be an indication that the creature designer in charge of the series might have had a look at our uh, publication. I like to feel, I like to dream about that. So. <laughs> Let, let, let me have it. Yeah. We, we've we talked to some people who've worked on the art for Jurassic Park and Jurassic World, and they do read scientific papers. Yeah. So. Especially with yours, where it's pretty recent. Yeah. It'd, it'd be hard to yeah. ignore, I think. Also, because there are not so many publications on Morano. <laughs> so there are like three the original one by Philip Take, 1975 or six, I don't remember. A second one by Rasmussen, 1999, and then mine. So. <laughs> It's not so difficult to find the uh, Oranosaur publication, so... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's the good thing about being into ornithopods. They're not nearly as sought after as, like, T-Rex, where everybody seems to be scrambling to study T-Rex and, you know, different analyses, rehashing the same arguments. You can have your pick of yeah. what you want to study. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, also within ornithopods, there are uh, some era where there are a lot of people working on, okay... Compared to theropods, there are not so many <laughs> ornithopod specialists, but within ornithopods, the main specialists are focusing on similar topics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So real quick, I just want to know what you think, because there's, there's some sort of weird similarity between the spines on Aranosaurus and the spines on Spinosaurus, just because they're you know in the same general vicinity and they both have this super weird back. Do you have any thoughts about what was going on in that environment that was causing these sails to pop up? Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, uh, when I was younger and I was dreaming about a possible PhD application, I was thinking to make a project about a revision of all the sails in the fossil record. Because Mm -hmm. yes, sails are known by famous dinosaurs like Oranosaurus and Spinosaurus. But sails are present in a good wide array of animals in the past, and not just dinosaurs, because there is an amphibian with a sail, Platyhistrix. Think mm. about a salamander with a sail, with <laughs> long spines. There is a crocodile-like animal, the Arizonosaurus, that is uh, like a, quote-quote, Rawisukian-grade uh, crocodilimorph, with a sail. There are other animals with not a real sail, but uh, slightly elongated neural spines like Tenosauriscus, uh, that is, semi- is kind of crocodilimorph-like. And then there are the dinosaur, Spinosaurus, but other ornithopods. There are some iguanodontians, uh, I think from Spain, with elongated neural spines. There's Barsboldia from Asia, that is a adrosauromorph with similar elongated uh, neural spines with, with uh, Oranosaur. Spinosaur, Concavenator, Ictiovenator, Deinocairus. Deinocairus was a literally a surprise to see <laughs> this strange duck-billed ornithomimosaurid with a sail 
on yeah. the back. <laughs> what? <laughs> so even that, and then we move in uh, in the in the memo realm, and we have Bison. Bison has a very similar conformation of elongated neurospine that res- resemble that of Oranosaur. Mm. Mm-hmm. So it's. It's difficult because it's very difficult to get access to all these specimens. So to get like a general overview, especially if you want to do something invasive like uh, histology, I wouldn't say impossible, but extremely unlikely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But uh, I see something to do in the future because uh, a lot of people are still, as you are doing right now, wondering about uh, the structure (laughs) because you could say, well, it appears in uh, harsh environment like the Niger of Albion Aptian that was not so desertified, but it had this, this period of uh, no raining time and uh, and drought and everything. But then you have an amphibian with the uh, sail. <laughs> yeah. And bison, they live not in a real desert environment. They, more, they live more like in, in temperate area. Mm-hmm. So there are some questions and answers that we still have to find. Sometimes it's even difficult to find question, the right question, mm-hmm. more than the right answer. So I hope to be able in the future to do something more about that because it's, um, for me, it's an extremely interesting uh, topic. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Cool. You also uh, briefly mentioned the sort of thumbs on Aranosaurus, and I know you've also looked at Iguanodon do you have any thoughts on the thumb spikes? What was going on with these things? Man, those things are huge. <laughs> you cannot understand the, the the size of that weapon until you don't have it in your hand. This is something about Iguanodon, because we have the general public idea of Iguanodon as the English one, the Mantellisaurus. Mm-hmm. But the Mantellisaurus is uh, lighter built than the quote-quote proper Iguanodon, that is the Iguanodon bernisartensis, the one found in, uh, in Belgium. Mm. Because it's smaller, it's lighter, the thumb is reduced in size compared to its cousin. Whereas bernisartensis, man, that animal is a freaking beast. <laughs> if stout and 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 massive. I think that as an, an adult Iguanodon, Bernisatesis was a very difficult animal to bring down for a predator. Mm. And looking at the, at the farm, but now we know, we know there was a very nice paper by uh, Verdu et al. 2017, if I... I'm very bad with dates, but I think it's around that. He and his team revised uh, uh, some morphologies of the Iguanodon from the sinkhole in Bernisart. So the, uh, the the large group or groups of iguanodon that fossilized together, and he saw that there is uh, a disparity of size between uh, uh, thumbs. So mm. there are two morphologies, and one might be the male, one might be the, the female. We don't know for sure if the male had the bigger thumb or the smaller thumb. We this cannot know. We know that within the iguanodons in the Belgian Museum there are two types of thumb a larger one and a smaller one. So it, if it's true that the, this can be a sexual character, we might hypothesize that the thumb is used between male to fight each other, mm. to compete for mating, 
or for the territory, and why not also for defense? I don't see any problem in Iguanodon uh, fighting against uh, a predator, might, might it be a baryonyx or whatever else Carnosaur is there, using the thumb. And uh, this is something that uh, I hope someone will study in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was the size of the thumb spike? Or at least I should say the bone part of the thumb spike. My thumb is like uh, five centimeter and uh, one of the thumb is like f- 30 Oh, jeez. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's like a foot. I didn't realize it was that huge. I could see yeah, why uh, there was a mistake when they first were putting it together. Yeah, this can't be <laughs> on yeah, the hand. At yeah. the beginning, they thought it was a horn. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and of course, they they have never seen one of them before. They, they didn't even know what a dinosaur was in 1922, 23. Actually, this is why uh, the guanodons in Bernisart, where I work, are very important because they are the real dinosaurs. Okay. Sure, the first dinosaurs were found in England, but those were isolated, disarticulated materials. The teeth, the horn, some bone, that they really didn't know how to put them. They just made a comparison with iguanas mm-hmm. and made these huge... At, at the beginning, it was just a very huge 24-meter-long iguana. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then they made it into this pachydermic, antediluvian, uh, uh, mammoth-like animals. Yeah. And it was because uh, coal, mi- coal miners found the 30-plus skeletons of Iguanodon that people started to, f- to realize what a dinosaur was. So Iguanodon is really the foundation of all, all, all the things that we know and, and love today that is dinosauria. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't learn about that detail until many years after learning about dinosaurs, that mm-hmm. crazy quarry that had so many individuals in it. And just, yeah, it's it's weird that Iguanodon isn't such a, like in the top five of like most popular dinosaurs, especially with that thumb spike. Come yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Disney dinosaur tried that, but uh, it didn't got the attention of the fan base that, he, that mm. the movie really deserved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. That was Iguanodon. I didn't even remember that that was Iguanodon. <laughs> it was an Iguanodon. <laughs> and a really well-made Iguanodon man behind Disney Dinosaur, there was such a huge and incredible pillow artwork in preparation of the movie. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm really upset with a, uh, with a Disney fan base. They just snob this movie out mm-hmm. and say, do you realize how much work it has been done behind this movie yeah the muscular muscular reconstruction that mm-hmm. people made for the movie i never saw such works for in papers mm-hmm. <laughs> and i saw it for a movie i was like wow they really made their research to 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 create a uh, plausible dinosaurs mm-hmm. and the guanodon okay they had to modify a bit because it was a, a work by creature designer. The the lips had to move to mimic the the speaking yeah. and, and stuff. But except the, the few details, the Iguanodon reconstruction of that movie still stands. Nice. Wow. Yeah, that's good to hear. Yeah, it's it's fun when you watch movies just from like a dinosaur enthusiast perspective. We have very different criteria for what makes a good movie <laughs> than like an average person. Like, I don't care about the story. I just want to see the reconstructions. 
Those people think about the story, the plot, <laughs> the coherent. Bah, I look at the reconstruction. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what we do too. Yeah. We go to a Jurassic Park movie and we're like, it's, we're going to enjoy it because there's going to be some new dinosaurs. It's going to be cool looking. It'll be fun there's to see what they do. There's going to be an in Dominion. I, I'm like a child. I'm super excited about it. Awesome. And, and there's going to be a new reconstruction of Parasaurolophus as well. Oh. I didn't realize. With a probably more like keratin going on, hopefully. There is one picture that is uh, that has been published by Universal as a tease about Parasaurolophus, and I'm really upset because it's showed in a particular way that we don't clearly see his neck. Mm. Mm. And if that Parasaurolophus will show a thicker neck. In that moment, you will might hear my scream <laughs> from the other side of the world because it means that one of my research had positively impacted the Jurassic Park saga. And <laughs> as a dinosaur fan myself, as a dinosaur aficionado and a Jurassic Park aficionado, I will just scream. It's like your I'll own Easter scream. egg yeah. to look for. Yeah, yeah. Oh, if I'll be at the cinema... I don't care. I will scream. I will be the only one screaming in the hall, but they will probably throw me out, but man, that will be deserved. They'll just think like, why is that? They're showing the friendly iguanodon right now. Why is he screaming? I would say, you see, that that is because of me and my team. That's awesome. Is the, uh, the neck proportion, does that have to do with your work with like dinosaur breathing? Is that why? No, with dinosaur, with dinosaur pathology. Oh yeah. So what was the what was the pathology that led you to that? So uh, during for my PhD, I studied the, as I said before the paleopathology in ornithopods because apparently, hadrosaurs, the duck-billed dinosaur like Parasaurolophus, they do present a very high frequency of uh, traumas and lesions and diseases in their skeletons mm. compared to other dinosaurs. Maybe it's because other people haven't watched properly in other dinosaur families. Mm -hmm. Maybe. So far, we can say that others do present a very high frequency of these uh, problems. And one of the most famous case, uh, case study was the Parasaurolophus itself. The holotype that is uh, exhibited at the, the Rome, the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto, it's a skeleton that was found in the 20s. And so far, it's the only skeleton or articulated skeleton of Parasaurolophus walkeri, that is the species of the holotype. And in that skeleton, you can see that the neural spines, two neural spines are in the back, at the beginning of the back, are spread to form like a, a V-like space. And on the spine that is pressing forward, on top of it, there is a disc-like overgrowth. Hmm. Whereas the other one is pressing backward, and at the beginning, people thought that this V-like space was to accommodate the elongated crest that is on top of the head. So imagine the Parasaurolophus <laughs> with this tube is watching on the side and the crest is passing through this uh, uh, V-like uh, saddle. It looks like a saddle. And the, the disc, people thought uh, it was uh, the base for like a, a crest, like a, a skin flap crest for, for Parasaurolophus and stuff. But it was never published or test or anything. It was just a, a thing for like a, a popular books. 
And then when I arrived there to check at the collection, I asked the curator, uh, Dr. David Evans, if I could uh, analyze the, the, the specimen from my PhD. And he said yes. And for me, it was like Christmas morning because, <laughs> man, working on the holotype of Parasaurolophus. Yeah, that specimen is something else. <laughs> I was terrified because <laughs> I, was on, I was on top of the skeleton. If I was sleeping and breaking anything, it was easier for me to just run to Antarctica and hide there. <laughs> it was easier. It could have been easier. But luckily enough, in Epid, I, I was very lucky to study it. And what my team and I discovered is that uh, these dinosaurs suffer a huge impact on the back mm. uh, because we also found broken ribs on the same column toward the um, these uh, uh, displaced neurospines mm. and it really looked like uh, as an object impacted on this animal it could be anything it could be another animal another parasaurolophus it could have been a rock it could be a tree I thought I thought it's a tree because it really looks like all the broken ribs and the displaced uh, um, neurospines, it looks like that is on, on a line. Mm. So like a giant tree that collapsed from... No, ouch. Uh, a collapsing tree, a storm, a fire, whatever, we cannot know that. So this animal was, had a broken back, but he was able to survive at least for <laughs> four or five months. And he died after for, we don't know which reason. It could have been a... a prolonged problem, secondary prolonged problem after this trauma. Could it be because a predator just killed it by chance? It could be because it had a heart attack. Mm -hmm. We don't know. It. We know that this animal survived long enough for the body to start to heal. Mm. And that was already a fine discovery because we could say, okay, the saddle is not an anatomical uh, character. It's a pathological character. But then one of my colleagues, Fabio Manucci, that is a very skilled pillow artist, and say, Filippo, have you noticed that ossified tendons in adrosaurs, this uh, very elongated tube-like structure on the spines in the back of adrosaurs, uh, that serve to stiff the, the animal back, basically. Have you noticed that in all the adrosaurs, these tendons start after the seventh neurospine, hmm. seven, eight, nine uh, neurospine? Hmm, let's count where our displaced neurospines are. Six point towards and seven pointing backwards. Uh. Mm. And the disc-like the, the disc -like overgrowth is placed on the sixth attached to the fifth because it was pressing on the fifth neurospine. The area where we don't see tendons, hmm. the, tendon, the tendons start before. So this is an area that was controlling something in the neck. Mm. Then, what is this disc-like? It's basically a newly formed bone, reaction bone, that is formed when something collapses on something cartilaginous. And the tendons is controlling the back. Something is controlling the base of the neck, and we have a pathology out of an impact towards a cartilaginous structure. What can be that? Well, it can be the nuchal ligament. The, li the very strong and stirred ligament, for, the, for example, in, uh, in horses, it made the dorsal part of the neck of the horses. If, when you see a horse and you see the very thick and uh, uh, stout neck, it's because of this giant ligament that connects the beginning of the back to the neck. Mm. 
Mm. And the head. I wouldn't say clearly because it's paleontology, nothing can be known for sure, but all our data points toward the hypothesis hypothesis and the theory that this disc-like overgrowth is actually the pathological base of the nuchal ligament. So we can now pinpoint in in an andrososkeleton where the nuchal ligament starts, or at least it was generating. Mm. And then we can see that uh, by comparison with modern birds and modern modern crocodiles and other reptiles, where the nuchal ligaments go. Sometimes it goes towards the first uh, vertebra of the neck. Sometimes it goes towards the occipital region of the skull. So in our paper, we had a different set of uh, uh, nuchal ligaments uh, because uh, since the vertebra with the disc was the five or the six, we say, okay, we have two origi- possible origins for the nuchal ligament. And then we have two possible insertion for the nuchal ligament, the vertebra or the skull. Hmm. And in our paper, we offer a wide array of possibilities of the morphology of the neck because we don't know which one was. We know that there is a set of possibilities where it might end up. And I think it was uh, pretty honest uh, uh, of us to show, okay, we we don't have the clear answer for that, but we offer you a possibility that perhaps in the future with mummified skeleton of adrosos, because adrosos have a lot of mummified specimens, Mm -hmm. or better histological analysis of neurospines in the back, or whatever other specimen comes out, we might prove or disprove our hypothesis and maybe that one will fall within one of our conformation hypotheses. Mm. And for me, it was it was a very interesting study that showed what pilopathology can tell us. Pilopathology don't tell us just a glimpse in the life of, a, of an extinct animal, which for me is cool already, because it also associates you with the animal, because when you see that even dinosaurs suffer, you start to sympathize for them mm-hmm. in a more... Uh, I wouldn't say human because it's bad, but in a more natural way. Mm-hmm. But also it serves, it shows that pinopathology can serve to show more than just a broken bone. Yeah. It can be used for indirectly proving something else, like the presence of a, a typical muscular or a, a tendinous uh, structure. Yeah, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. I know um, you've got a, a very cool Instagram page. We were. We've been enjoying your posts and you've started doing live streams of dinosaur games. I guess, can you tell us a little bit about about your work, your outreach there? I stream mainly in Italian because I saw that there are quite a several amount of uh, English channel on that, mm-hmm. whereas Italians, there are none. No, one for sure, but uh, uh, not so many. And there I just speak about dinosaur. Uh, using video games so I teach about dinosaur anatomy using video games awesome <laughs> and uh, I also we also see like document documentaries and cartoons when possible for copyrights of course and uh, I also started to use uh, RPGs like uh, Dungeons and Dragons Call of Cthulhu and all these kind of games uh, imaginative games to teach about dinosaurs mm-hmm. and paleontology this is something that I haven't seen people doing that much. It's like a, a open ecological niche that I'm trying to to conquer. 
I, I have a bit of followers that are interested in uh, dinosaur RPGs for teaching because, you know, it's just a game. It's just a, a, a game where you just use the feature of mind, uh, as people call sometimes, where you follow the, uh, the person that is telling your story and you are imagining everything in your mind. And of course, you are, you are creating figures in your imagination based on what the narrator is telling you, but also mm. what you know about these animals. And if I am the narrator of a story and I describe you the Velociraptor and I describe you wrongly, like a a Jurassic Park-based Velociraptor, <laughs> you will continue to have the, that idea of a dinosaur. But if I am a paleontologist that is also the narrator and I'm putting my knowledge, my anatomical knowledge in the game so I'm not boring you because it's something active and useful for the game, mm -hmm. you are imagining it in the proper way, but you're also learning. But you don't realize that you are learning because you are playing. <laughs> <laughs> one, of, one of the best examples is uh, when you see people placing Tyrannosaurus Rex in a small tropical island. <laughs> For God's sake, no! <laughs> no, it doesn't work like that. Why are you putting a poor Tyrannosaurus on a tropical island? <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> Put it in a forest, in a continental forest. Okay, fine. Even better, a temperate forest. <laughs> are you on a tropical island? Just put small raptors. Yeah. But uh, they are still freaky. They are still... <laughs> They are still terrifying, but don't put a Tyrannosaur on a freaking <laughs> tropical island, please. Yeah, you can put a Spinosaur, maybe, right? No. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> More tropical. <laughs> Think about the baby Spinosaur. <laughs> so where's the best place for people if they want to follow you and, and watch your live streams and follow you on Instagram and everything, where should they go? In Instagram, you find my, let's call it scientific profile, that is dino underscore doctor. Whereas I have another account uh, that is mm, for dinosaur and RPG called Dyson Dinosaur. The problem is that that account is in Italian. Mm -hmm. uh, even though I started to post a uh, dinosaur chart for D&D, Mm. Uh, that are in English. So mm. if you want to use a scientifically plausible dinosaur in D&D, come to see my uh, my account. Awesome. Where, and the same name, Dyson Dinosaur, is also in, in Twitch. I stream, as I said, in Italian. But if any English-speaking pe person wants to come and have a chat in English, I can switch my language in less than a second. So no problem <laughs> about that. Nice. That's good to be able to do. We we can't do that. <laughs> I spent a lot of time uh, trying to do that. And it was just because I got a PhD in Ordenarla that I was finally able to... Okay, I can, I can switch it now. Awesome. <laughs> Took a lot of effort. I'm impressed. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm not very good in language, in languages, but I can... I, I try. Well, you sound good to us, so... Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us and we'll be sure to share all these links in our show notes too for anybody who wants to keep following you and your work. Thank you very much and thank you again for inviting me. It has been a pleasure and a real fun. Thanks again, Filippo, for the fantastic interview. 
And congrats on that Jurassic World interpretation of Parasaurolophus and its neck being the way that you had written about in your paper. Yes, very exciting. We saw on Twitter, he posted, yes, they did it. (laughs) They used (laughs) my research. (laughs) And now we're going to take a quick ad break. But when we get back, we'll be on to our dinosaur of the day, Ephragia. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Ephragia, which was a request from Crow via our Patreon and Discord. So thanks. Ephragia was a basal sauropodomorph that lived in the late Triassic in what is now Baden-Württemberg, Germany, in the Burrerschen Quarry. It looked like other sauropodomorphs with a long tail and claws. It was medium-sized and lightly built, and estimated to be about 20 to 23 feet or 6 to 7 meters long. At first, Ephragia was thought to be small, at around 6.6 to 9.8 feet or 2 to 3 meters long, but turns out that was based on juvenile fossils. Yeah, it happens. That one was that long. It just wasn't the length of the adult. (laughs) (laughs) And then in 2003, Yates estimated that adults were 21 feet or 6.5 meters long. It's quite a bit bigger. Yep. Although still pretty small for a sauropod. Maybe not a late Triassic sauropodomorph, though. Yeah. Sauropodomorphs are a little bit different. At least they're early ones. Technically, all sauropods are sauropodomorphs. Ephragia <laughs> <laughs> had a small pointed triangular skull and a somewhat long neck that was thin. It also had low neural spines on the tail and gracile hands and feet. It may have been bipedal or quadrupedal. It had long fingers and thumbs that it could use to grasp food. Now, its wrist shape may have allowed it to walk on all fours, although not everybody agrees on that. Some think that the lower arm couldn't rotate in a way to put its hands on the ground, and then that would mean it could only walk on two legs. And Fragia's second finger was longer than its third finger. It was herbivorous, although it was originally thought to be carnivorous, but then gastrolists were found in association with one of the specimens. Specifically, there's 14 small, smooth pebbles that von Huhn reported in 1932. The type and only species is Ephragia minor. It was named after Eberhard Frage, who found the fossils. The fossils were found in 1902 when Albert Burer, a stonemason, was trying to reach some hard white sandstone in a quarry for building. They had to remove about 20 feet or 6 meters of softer marl. To dig down to it in the cliff. Well, they had to remove the marl, then they got to the hard white sandstone, and then they found the fossils. Mm, cool. And a lot of fossils were found in the marl and the underlying soft sandstone. 
When the quarry was closed from 1906 to 1914, Byrd donated the fossils to Eberhard, Eberhard Frage, who was a professor at the State Museum of Natural History, Stuttgart. The fossils were first thought to be part of three already named dinosaurs, Teratosaurus minor, Celosaurus fragi, and Paleosaurus diagnosticus. And the fossils included vertebrae, a right hind limb, and a pubic bone. Other fossils have since been found, including some in large slabs, though they're not fully prepared. But other fossils found include an incomplete skull, vertebrae, astralia, ribs, humerus, pubis, femora, tibia, fibula, astralagus, end of the right pes, and more. So lots of different parts. Yeah, that's good. I guess you didn't list the hand there, but there's a little bit of the hand too. When you have the hand, the feet, the head, and a whole bunch of other pieces, that gives you a really good idea for what the animal looked like and maybe even how it behaved. Yes, but there was some confusion with assigning these fossils. So Friedrich von Huhn first described the fossils in 1907 and 1908 as Teratosaurus minor. And at the time, Teratosaurus was thought to be a theropod. It's now considered to be a Rausukian, which is a group of archosaurs more closely related to crocodilians than to birds and non-avian dinosaurs. The species name, minor, refers to Teratosaurus minor being smaller than Teratosaurus suvicus, which is the type species. See, that's one of those problems when you put two things in the same genus. <laughs> going, going back to last week's episode, yeah. yeah. Von Huhn also named Celosaurus phragi based on a partial skeleton, but Celosaurus is now a synonym of Platyosaurus, and we talked about that in episode 152. In 1912, Fraz reported two partial skeletons that he assigned to Thecodontosaurus diagnosticus. However, his health wasn't great, so he didn't formally describe them, and it was a nomum nudum. Von Huhn used the species name when he redescribed Fraz's specimens in 1932 after Fraz died, and he called them Paleosaurus question mark diagnosticus. It was meant to be a provisional name. In 1959, Oscar Kuhn said that the name Paleosaurus was already being used for an archosaur named back in 1836, so he renamed it to Paleosauruscus. Paleosaurus is a pretty cool name. Like an ancient saurian situation. Yeah. Ancient lizard. Ancient archosaur. Yeah. <laughs> Alan Cherig first used the name Paleosauruscus diagnosticus in 1967. Although Cope had named Paleosauruscus fraserianus in 1878, there were a lot of classifications, but the latest seems to be that that one that Cope named was a phytosaur, archosaur, and it was based on a tooth. <laughs> yeah, that's not the thing you want to stick it in the genus with Yeah, if it's a sauropodomorph. <laughs> <laughs> in 1973, Peter Galton assigned all of Fraz's specimens to the new genus Ephragia, and named Ephragia. He named it Ephragia diagnostica. In 1985, Galton and Bob Barker suggested Ephragia be a junior synonym to Celosaurus gracilis. In 2003, Adam Yates analyzed fossils from the late Triassic in what is now Germany and found Celosaurus fossils belonged to either Celosaurus gracilis, which he assigned to Platyosaurus gracilis, and the rest was Teratosaurus minor, Celosaurus fragi, and Paleosaurus diagnosticus. But Ephragia was named first. I really like that it's Paleosaurus diagnosticus, and it's like one of the least diagnostic signs. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> 
Now, the species name for Ephragia was more complicated since von Huhn had written in 1908 in the same book about Tyrannosaurus minor and Celosaurus fragi. Tyrannosaurus minor appeared on the page first, so Yates chose minor to be the species name, and then the full name of the dinosaur became Ephragia minor. It's very complicated. So basically, it had been named with a wrong genus before, but since the species name was associated with it of minor, then when eventually it got its own genus, <laughs> then it we had to keep that species name. Yes. And it was kind of a toss-up which species name he would use. Mm. But minor was technically earlier by being earlier on the page. Yes. <laughs> sort of like Tyrannosaurus and Dynamosaurus. Tyrannosaurus is definitely a better one. We're lucky that one came first. Yeah, I don't know if Dynamosaurus would have been as famous. It probably would be. It just wouldn't be as cool. Mm. We are also used to Tyrannosaurus. Yeah, we're pretty biased. <laughs> now, Yates did not consider two other species that von Huhn had named based on fragmentary fossils. That was Tyrannosaurus trosingensis and Thecodontosaurus hermanius. Galton in 1990 considered both of those species to be junior synonyms of Ephrasia diagnostica. Galton said Ephrasia was, quote, an ideal ancestor for the more recent Ankysaurus, end quote, which had some advanced features, like the first metacarpal was broader and the first ungual was shorter. So a little bit of differences in the hand. Mm-hmm. Galton also mentioned a pathology in one of the skeletons, so a nearly complete skeleton with an incomplete skull, where the right humerus was shorter compared to the left. He wrote, quote, as the area of the fracture is healed and well finished, the animal must have lived for quite a while after the break, end quote. Must have felt weird. Probably not great. <laughs> yeah. In 2017, Mario Bronzati and Oliver Raoult described the brain case of Ephrasia minor. They CT scanned it, and they found that the brain case anatomy of sauropods is a result of modifications in their evolutionary history, though it's unclear if it's due to, quote, rapid and drastic morphological change, end quote, or because there's just a small number of brain cases preserved, so we don't know. And our fun fact of the day is that the T-Rex holotype was moved from the American Museum of Natural History to the Carnegie Museum when the U.S. joined World War II in order to protect it from potential air raids, which I did mention last week, but there's a lot to expand on. So we mentioned... First of all, that it switched names from AMNH 973 to CM 9380, and that is because it was sold rather than being temporarily moved. According to Discovering Dinosaurs in the American Museum of Natural History, written in 1995 by Mark Norella and others, and I think Mark Norella is a good source for this because he's been curator of the AMNH since 1990, so over 30 years at this point. Oh, yeah, so he's very familiar. <laughs> yeah. He says that the story of the sale is hard to authenticate, but he found a note from Barnum Brown that says, quote, the type specimen, which had most of the limb bones preserved, was sold to the Carnegie Museum after we had made casts of the limbs in 1941, as we were afraid the Germans might bomb the American Museum in New York as a war measure, and we hoped that at least one specimen would be preserved, end quote. So I guess... If you have to choose one to preserve, <laughs> they went for the T-Rex holotype. I'm sure they did more with some of the other fossils too, but it's just interesting that Barnum Brown really emphasized at least one would be preserved. Yeah. 
The New York Times says that it was on display at the Carnegie in 1942, so they didn't waste any time getting it on display there. And I guess in Pittsburgh, they weren't worried about German bombing. They were a lot farther from the coast. They report the selling price was $7,000, which is about the cost of four Studebakers in 1941. And $7,000 from 1941 is equivalent to about $130,000 to $140,000 today, which is about four Honda Odysseys. <laughs> so the the translation of people mover to this specimen haven't changed. But the value of a T-Rex skeleton has changed quite a bit mm-hmm. because, of course, Stan sold for about $32 million. So it was probably a pretty good investment for the Carnegie, all told. I'm sure it's probably gotten them a lot more than $100,000 worth of museum traffic as well. Probably. New York wasn't ever bombed by the Germans, so the precaution turned out to be unnecessary, but it's definitely better to be overprepared than underprepared when it comes to these things. Mm -hmm. In the news these days, we've seen a lot of reports of art being moved to basements across Ukraine as they're getting bombed all over the place. There are paleontology collections in Kiev, Lviv, and Odessa, but as far as I can tell, there aren't any dinosaur fossils in those museums since Ukraine was mostly under the Tethys Sea during the Mesozoic. But they do have lots of other excellent fossils, including aquatic fossils and mammoths. And an article in Science discusses some of the work natural history museums and other scientists are doing in Ukraine to try to preserve these things, and so hopefully they don't don't get destroyed. Yeah. Anton Vlashenko in Kharkiv heard bombs the morning of February 24th, and he rushed to the Ukrainian Bat Rehabilitation Center, which is the largest bat rescue and research facility in Europe. Oh, I had no idea. I didn't either, and I love bats, so I'm glad I know about this place now. He spent 24 hours straight releasing rescued bats. Wow. I guess while they're rehabilitating them, they keep them in refrigerators to keep them hibernating, and I I presume that helps them to heal. But Obviously, he was worried that they would get killed, so Mm -hmm. he released them. And Kharkiv is pretty close to the Russian border, so he was especially worried. Obviously, he heard bombs. That was the first day Russia invaded as well. So he released tons of bats, but he also brought bats that were too sick to release to his apartment. So I guess his apartment has a bunch of bats in it now. Mm. And he also brought a collection of 2,000 bat skulls, and he keeps them by the door in bags, he says, in case he needs to move them again with really quick notice. Wow. So that's just one example of what a researcher is doing to try to preserve their collection. Seems like no matter what, it wouldn't be that quick to move 2,000 skulls. I mean, they're bat skulls, so they're really small. smaller, yeah. He said a lot of them are bubble wrapped and things like that. But you're right. That's a lot of skulls. So even if there's just a little padding around each one, that's going to take up quite a few bags. And I guess they just didn't have a basement or a nice storage place where he thought they would be safe in that bat rehabilitation center. So he decided the best thing he could do was just take them with him. Across the rest of Ukraine, other people are rushing to hide, 3D scan, and upload their collections to servers outside of Ukraine. As a quote-unquote happy accident, many of the anthropological artifacts from between 800 and 1050 CE are currently on display in Denmark, Oh, which is a really important part of Ukrainian history. I also found out in researching this, in World War II, many fossils were destroyed not only in Munich, but also in Milan and Kiev. Hmm. So it's not the first time people in Ukraine have dealt with an invasion and trying to preserve their history. Mm-hmm. 
A group of librarians, archivists, researchers, and programmers also created a website called Saving Ukrainian Culture Heritage Online, or S-U-C-H-O, and they have a website, S-U-C-H-O.org. And this is a place where people are trying to preserve all of the data that they can. It's reportedly really difficult right now to upload from a lot of places in Ukraine because they have inconsistent power as well as internet connection. Mm -hmm. But these researchers, what they're trying to do is get data off of internet addresses that they can and back those up from outside of Ukraine as much as possible where the internet is more stable. Mm. So they are looking for volunteers. It's especially helpful if you can read Ukrainian or Russian. And they're also looking for volunteers who can help identify URLs for at-risk sites and collections, for help archiving both crawlable and uncrawlable data and sites. You need a little bit of technical know-how for that. Mm -hmm. Other tech projects, and then also just in general, other roles you can help with. They have a field for that on their volunteer form. So suchoorg is one place you can go if you're interested in helping with this. Yeah, it's amazing that they were able to put that together so quickly. Yes. Yeah. Some of the stories, man, I really tear up when I start reading these things because it's truly awful. But it is, there are so many heroes and so many amazing stories coming out of it. And just the lengths people are going to to protect themselves and their families and their research. Mm -hmm. So again, if you want to get involved, SUCHO.org. And that wraps up this episode of Vino Dino. Thank you for listening. Again, the website that Garrett mentioned, if you want to help, is SUCHO.org. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.